Good morning. Well, you'll notice that the title of this message, as reflected in the bulletin, doesn't bear any resemblance to what's on the screen. That's because I was once again pretty far into the preparation when I realized that, uh, that I need to back off the scope a little bit and take fewer verses. These chapters give us a whole lot to consider, and they are exceedingly important to the reality of our day-to-day walk with the Lord, of our sanctification. Uh, so I think it's important for us to move at a pace that allows us to really uh, meditate on, really think about what Paul is setting before us. This morning we're going to examine verses 12 through 14 of Romans 6. And the, the title that I assign to this message is Instruments of Righteousness, because I believe that's the real focus here. There are three things that we're going to talk about, uh, broken down into the three verses. First, the essential command, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, in verse 12. And then, verse 13, how you end the reign of sin in your mortal body. And finally, why sin shall not be master over you. That is, because you are not under law, but under grace. You could look at those three parts as the what, the how, and the why. Now, let's read the passage, and I'd like to ask you to stand. It's uh, just three verses, so you won't be standing long. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Dear Father, we ask that you help us this morning to understand clearly You're calling to us to no longer allow sin to reign in these bodies. Teach us what it means to present ourselves to you as truly alive unto you and to present the, the members, the very parts of our bodies, as tools for your purposes alone. We ask this in order that Christ may be glorified in us and through us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks. Paul begins this section in verse 12 with the word, therefore. And that word points us back to all that Paul has already said about our association with Jesus Christ in the likeness of his death and in the likeness of his resurrection. And it also points us back to the to the very first command in the book of Romans, which was the preceding verse, verse 11, chapter 6. Even so, consider, reckon, count yourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, the word mortal in verse 12 uh, is derived from the verb that means to die. In chapter 7, verse 24... Paul refers to his physical body as the body of this death. 
Now, I assume we're all in agreement that our physical bodies are destined to die, right? But the death to which Paul is uh, referring here is both physical and spiritual. The death that's bound up with our mortal bodies is more than merely the destiny of physical death. Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And one of the first things that struck me when I read that verse is, whose lusts? The body's lusts? Or sin's lust, because they're both presented there. And when you first look at the verse, it's not clear which it's talking about. Fortunately, the, the grammar in the Greek makes it clear that the word its and its lust points to the word body. Paul's command here is, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey your body's lusts. And there can be no doubt that throughout His epistles, Paul associates the residue of our old sin nature with our physical bodies. Back in verse 6, Paul said, Our old self was crucified with Christ that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. The phrase old self literally means old man. When we came to faith in Christ Jesus and we were redeemed, By God, we were spiritually reborn. We were made new creatures in Christ. And the new man who is born of God is our true identity in Christ. I'll say that again. The new man who is born of God is our true identity in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says this about the old man and the new man. And I'm starting at verse 17 to get get the flow. There's a long section in between these verses, but verse 17 explains how verse 22 uh, is logically uh, tied uh, to to what's going on in that passage. So first, verse 17, This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The new man, the new self, already exists in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The old man, on the other hand, is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. The contrast in the verb tenses here is critical. The old man is being corrupted, and that process is present and ongoing. The new man is the one Created the one who has been created in holiness and righteousness of the truth. That's not a process at all. That's a done deal. That's an accomplished fact. Our recreation is done. In Romans 7.18, Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And then in verse 22 he says, I joyfully concur with the law of God and the inner man, but I see a different law, where? In the members of my body. 
waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Now, I'm not going to try to dive into Romans 7 here. That would be getting ahead of this morning's message. But I want to at least point out this contrast between the old man and the new man and to make sure that we clearly see the connection between our physical body and that old man, that old sin nature. In Romans 6, verse 6, Paul already said that our old man was crucified with Christ. Past tense, done. He's dead. But in Ephesians 4, Paul says the old man is being corrupted, present tense, and ongoing in accordance with the lusts of deceit. In Romans 7, he says, we just saw the law uh, the law in the members of his body is waging war, present tense, and ongoing against the law of his mind, which he's already said is the law of God. Now, how is it that the old man is is still so aggressively working against the new man if the old man is already dead. I believe this goes to the already and not yet phenomenon that we talked about last week. Positionally, we have died to sin and we are alive to God. That's what Paul says we are to count as true because it is true. Our old man was crucified with Christ that our body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. That is how God sees us as believers even now. Because that's what he has made to be true of us even now through our union with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. That's positionally. What about essentially? This is also true in essence of us who are in Christ. Because it's true of Christ. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But it is also undeniable based on these and numerous other passages of Scripture that in practice, we are still laying hold of our new identity in Christ and we are putting on, we are putting off that old identity, putting on the new. Now you'll never, I don't think you'll ever make any sense uh, of Paul's teaching on sanctification if you don't accept both the already and the not yet in the way he presents this. Now, I'll try to make a little more sense of that as we proceed. Verse 13, okay, verse 12 gives us the essential command of this section, verses 12 to 14, which is, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you may uh, obey its lust, that you should obey its lust. Verse 13 tells us how to end the reign of sin in our bodies. And when I say it tells us how, I don't mean it gives us some kind of formula or checklist that's everything we need to know about how we realize our victory over sin. Our practical victory over sin is not accomplished by replacing old commands with new commands. That is, by replacing the law of Moses with a new law. Paul already made it clear in chapter 4 that law-keeping is not capable of making men righteous. He's going to get to the heart of what actually brings us to realize our victory over sin in chapter 8. And he's going to make it clear in chapter 7 that it is not by law-keeping. And we'll see that the heart of that victory isn't what we do, it's what God does in us. But, 
We are agents or instruments in the hands of God for many things, including the transformation that He is at work to cause in us. We're not called to be passive. We're called to be diligently active even in our own sanctification, always in utter dependence upon God. And here in verse 13 of Romans 6, Paul lays out three specific things that must happen if we are to put off and practice the reign of sin in our mortal bodies. We find in this verse that uh, ending that reign of sin in our bodies is very much associated with what we do with our bodies. There are three things that he says in verse 13. First, stop presenting the members of your body as uh, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Then, he says, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And then, and present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, rather than talking about each of those three parts of verse 13, one at a time, what I'd like to do is take the verse as a whole and consider what it's getting at from a few different angles. And in doing so, I want to take into consideration the critical context that led up to these commands, as well as some other things that Paul says in his letters that I think inform what he's getting at here. Here's the breakdown, and this is what is in the handout that some of you have. The breakdown of what I want to talk about uh, in verse thir- uh, re- in regard to verse 13. First, who is the new man that replaced the old man? Second, what does it mean to present your members as instruments of either of unrighteousness or of righteousness? Third, our responsibilities in sanctification are to know, reckon, and present. And then the last thing is the expulsive power of a worthy affection. And no, I did not misspell that word. I'll explain it when we get to it. First, the first thing I want to talk about in terms of how we end the reign of sin in our mortal body is we need to answer the question, who is the new man that replaced the old man? In Romans 6.13, Paul says, Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. It is indispensable for us to see the connection between what Paul is commanding us to do here and what he's already powerfully declared to be true of us in the preceding verses. Because everything he says about our responsibilities with regard to our own sanctification The commands are founded upon the established fact that we who believe in Jesus Christ have already been declared righteous in the eyes of God. That's called justification. We have already been made righteous in the nature of the new man that is now our true identity. That's called regeneration. And as can never be stated too often, the righteousness that we now possess is in every respect His righteousness. Whether we're talking about positional righteousness, essential righteousness, or practical righteousness, it's always His righteousness. Now, I want to take a moment to develop the idea of essential righteousness. If you 
If you've been born again through faith in Jesus Christ, then in a sense that's far more real than we sometimes acknowledge, the new regenerate man who defines your new identity is Christ in you. Now that doesn't mean that when my brother Michael Novakovich got saved that he quit being Michael Novakovich. It means that Christ in Michael and Michael in Christ is that which makes Michael the one God created him to be, or rather the one God recreated him to be. Who he was before God latched onto him and gave him new birth is really irrelevant going forward. The only identity that matters is Christ in him and him in Christ. We already saw in Romans 6 verses 8 through 11 that Paul said, We are to consider ourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Why? Because of what he said before that. Verse 8, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives... He lives to God. Even so, even as is true of Christ, count yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. How? In Christ Jesus. Count it as true because it is true. Dead to sin, but alive to God. There is no way to be dead to sin and alive to God except in Christ. The reason death is no longer master over you is because it's no longer master over him. I know, I'm repeating myself. (laughs) And you are in him. And he is in you. Galatians 2.20. This verse just always blows me away every single time I think of it. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. The only life that exists in your mortal bodies, if you're a believer in Christ, in fact, the only life that will ever exist in anybody's mortal body, when they're a believer in Christ, is the life of Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Set your mind on the things that are above, not the things that are on the earth, because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's the only life that exists. Your old man, your sin nature, was crucified with Christ and is dead. Your new man, the man that inhabits your mortal body and lives to God, is Jesus Christ. Now, if we water down or minimize in any way the power and completeness of these things that Paul says about the nature and essence of the new life that we possess in Christ, I I believe we negate what he says about sanctification. Because sanctification is about God's work to conform our experience, our practice, to that which is already true of our new nature as the redeemed of God. That new nature, that new man is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Sanctification isn't about progressively, progressively getting a new nature. <laughs> it's about the Spirit of God conforming our thoughts, our actions, and our speech to the new nature he has already given to us. Putting on in practice the one we already put on in position and essence. The moment we were reborn by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So, when his righteousness became our righteousness, his life became our life. The second thing I want to look at in regard to this command about presenting ourselves to God as those alive from the dead and presenting ourselves as instruments for his purposes is the progression that goes on in the commands, both implied and explicit in Romans chapter 6. There's a very important progression when it comes to our responsibilities in the process of sanctification. First, in verses 1 through 10, it's all about what we are to know regarding the fact of our death in Christ and our life in Christ. Our, our death in the likeness of his death and our life in the likeness of his resurrection. Then in verse 11, after he's told us for 10 verses what we are to know, he gives us a command, and that is to count or reckon those things to be true of us in Christ that are, in fact, true. And by the way, God doesn't ever call us to reckon something as true that's not true. God's not into positive visualization. We don't make stuff to be true because we think hard enough about it being true. That which God has declared to be true of us is more certain than anything that you will ever see or hear or touch. It is established now and forever. So founded on the knowledge of what's true and on the mental accounting that it is true, we are then to act in keeping with that which is true of us in Christ by presenting ourselves to God as those alive to him, and by presenting the members of our body as instruments of unrighteousness. The three operative words in Romans 6 are know, reckon, and present. Or to use my brother Bob's uh, words, know, reckon, and yield. Yield's a great, a great explanation of the word present. You can't and won't get the present or yield part, right, that is real obedience, if you haven't done and aren't continually doing the know and reckon parts. If you think you already know all you need to know about the Bible and you think the real nuts and bolts of the Christian life are about putting your Bible down and getting on with obedience, you're catastrophically wrong and your efforts at obedience will be short-lived and superficial. There's a reason Paul took six chapters to get to the first commands in this book. We as believers are constantly and fundamentally dependent upon God to tell us what's true, and we are constantly accountable to count it as true in order that we may be equipped to live it as true. And as I mentioned last week, that, of course means that we must be saturated with the Word of God because it's the only place that we will ever be exposed to that which is true. 
The third thing I'd like to consider in regard to putting to an end the reign of sin in our mortal body is what the real focus of verse 13, and that is what does it mean to present your members as instruments either of unrighteousness or righteousness? In Romans 12, uh, Romans 6, 12 to 14, there are two different images, actually in, in the whole chapter, there are two different images that have to do with giving over control of one, one's body. The first is the image of slavery. And the second is the image of instrumentality. And of those two images, the one that actually dominates the chapter and that persists throughout many of, uh, of, of the rest of, of Paul's writings is the image of slavery. And that's where Paul actually begins here. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. The words reign and obey fit the image of slavery or of submission of a subject to a king more than they fit the the image of wielding a tool or an instrument. The same is true of the word master in verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you. That's about slavery. And as Paul proceeds in verses 15 to 23, he's going to speak of our relationship to sin or righteousness purely in terms of slavery. So why in verse 13 does he talk about instruments rather than slaves? I think he does so to highlight a different and important aspect of what it means to give over control of ourselves. How do you use a tool? Well, you use a tool to perform a task. Same applies if it's a weapon, and that word can be either. You control the tool to make it useful for the task. And the tool itself doesn't have anything to say about how you use it. It's passive. It accomplishes nothing in and of itself. If the parts of your body are handed over to be used as instruments of unrighteousness, that means they are under the control of unrighteousness. And they serve the purposes of unrighteousness without any choice about what those purposes might be. On the other hand, if the parts of your body are handed over to be used as instruments of righteousness, that means they are under the control of righteousness and they serve the purposes of righteousness. The one who presents the members of his body as instruments or tools of unrighteousness becomes to unrighteousness what a hammer is to a carpenter. There's no opportunity for the hammer to rebel or to assert its independence from the carpenter. The control of the one wielding the tool is absolute. And when you deliver up the members of your body as instruments or tools of unrighteousness, unrighteousness takes over. And considering what we've already seen about the connection between our physical bodies and our old sin nature, it's especially pertinent that Paul uses this particular image when he's focusing on the negative command to, in effect, stop giving control of our bodies over to the impulse and influence of sin. A little earlier, we looked at Romans seven twenty-two to 23, in which Paul says, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in my mind, in the inner man. But I see a 
different law and the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Since your body is the headquarters, the base camp of your old sin nature, then your body's default inclination is to submit itself to the lusts of the body. So even the slightest movement in the direction of presenting the members of your body as instruments to unrighteousness is enough to move you decisively into the practice of unrighteousness. Now this has some serious ramifications when it comes to things like flirting with pornography. It used to require some effort to gain access to the kinds of images that are now not only readily available but hard to avoid when you're online. But every time you allow yourself the momentary indulgence of clicking on that little image over in the corner of your screen that looks so enticing, what you're doing is the equivalent of dribbling a basketball in a minefield. As believers, you and I live in a war zone 24 by 7, and the moment we drop our guard, we give the advantage to the enemy. The sin that is already bound up with your physical body is actively waging war against the law of God. Or to use the image that God used with Cain in Genesis chapter 4, sin is crouching like a lion at the door waiting to pounce. And by default, by default, the parts of your body are already leaning heavily toward the enemy's objectives, not God's. Now that might seem like a hopeless situation if all you had going for you was the strength of your own will. But as we'll see very decisively when we work through the next couple of chapters, God has not left us to our own devices. Indeed, nothing could be further from the truth. We are on the winning side. And our victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil is not just possible, it is guaranteed. Because this war in which we're engaged is unlike any other war that's ever occurred. Though the battle rages on, this war was already won at the cross. And in terms of our sanctification, as we'll see in chapters 7 and 8, our victory over the sin nature that resides in the members of our body is not a victory of mind over matter. It's a victory of the spirit over the flesh. And it's our victory only because it was first Christ's victory and we are in him. But again, I want to not jump too far ahead of Paul by talking a lot about the task that our master has promised to fulfill toward us because his purpose here in chapter 6 is to ensure that we clearly understand our assignment to present our bodies to him as instruments and slaves of righteousness. Later in the same epistle, Paul uses the language of urgency and of sacrifice in Romans 12.1 when he says to the believers at Rome, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul uses the same imperative again, present, in one of his most emphatic instructions to Timothy when he says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. I urge you to present your bodies. Be diligent to present yourself approved. You see the the intensity of these commands. God's call to us to present ourselves to him as instruments to be used for his purposes is an urgent call to a diligent, disciplined, and intentional lifestyle. Now, I love I love war histories, especially anything that has to do with uh, World War II or, or the Vietnam War. I'm in the process of reading a book that focuses on just one beachhead of the D-Day invasion, the ferocious battle at one piece of the French coastline that was dubbed by the Allies Omaha Beach. One of the amazing things that the writer points out about the massive preparations for the, the Normandy invasion is that every single American infantryman who set foot on the beaches of France that day, the morning of June 6, 1944, had gone through at least three weeks of very intensive training in England to learn many of the skills that normally applied only to those soldiers who were known as engineers. And to cross-train on weapons that other soldiers were responsible to use. And this extra layer of training was in addition to the many months and in some cases years of training that each soldier underwent just to learn his own specific role. Every soldier during those three weeks was cross-trained in things like how to locate and defuse mines, how to use a flamethrower or a radio or a Bangalore torpedo, or how to repair certain equipment that he didn't typically carry. The idea in the minds of those who planned this unprecedented operation was that knowing the great losses that were likely to occur very early on as the troops stormed the beaches, it was critical for any given soldier to be prepared to pick up a piece of equipment or a specialized weapon when another soldier was killed or or, or wounded, and then to make use of that other weapon or piece of equipment. And considering the magnitude of the casualties that occurred in the first hours of that great conflict and how dramatically the original battle plan had to be modified on the fly by the troops on the ground, it was widely believed that even among the ground troops themselves, that without the discipline of that grueling and intensive cross-training, the invasion could easily have failed. I find all sorts of spiritual applications in the realities of earthly warfare, and I certainly see relevance to that which Paul is talking about when he commands us to present. I already pointed out that Paul spent six and a half chapters talking about pure theology before he got to the exhortations we're looking at today. And before the exhortation to stop presenting the members of our body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, and to present them instead to God as instruments of righteousness, 
He first commanded us to count ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. A key part of the disciplined preparation to which God calls us in order that we will be well equipped for the pitch battle in which we are daily engaged against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, against every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, is that we must be very, very, very familiar with that which God declares to be true of us. Because of and in Jesus Christ. And we must be counting it as true every moment of every day. That doesn't happen passively. And unlike the training that those soldiers underwent to prepare for the invasion of Normandy, the disciplined training to which God calls us never ends. We're never finished with it. As soon as we think we are, we become weak and ineffective in the battle. When we say to God, Sorry, Lord, I don't have time today to read your word or to pray. It's like a soldier saying to his superior officer, I don't have time to clean my gun today. I might not even have time to load it. I have more urgent and important things to do. When we set aside that which equips us to present ourselves to God, we disarm ourselves and we give the advantage to the enemy. How do you step into the spiritual battle each day, prepared to present arms and fight? You make it your life's goal to know the Word of God better than you know anything else and to count it to be true on an ongoing basis. Then on the basis of what you know to be true and count to be true, you submit the very parts of your body to God's purposes alone. When the flaming arrows start flying, you must already have girded your loins with the truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness. You must already have shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace and have taken up the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Ephesians 6. And by the way, in this spiritual battle, there's no middle ground. (laughs) Either the members of your body are instruments to unrighteousness or they are instruments of righteousness. James 4.4 says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's pretty strong language. Kind of like what you'd hear from a drill instructor. (laughs) The last thing I want to look at regarding verse 13 is the expulsive power of a worthy affection. I changed one word from a title here, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But When I was a young man, I, like most young men, had several points in my life where I fell head over heels for some young woman, right? And looking back, I realized it was by the grace of God that most of those head-over-heels experiences were unrequited because when I was 27 years old, I met 
Debbie. And on that, uh, very soon after that day, starting on that day, it became crystal clear to me (laughs) what a worthy affection meant. And I realized that that God in His grace kept me from several wrong fits in order to prepare me for the one who was just right, whom he had prepared for me. That worthy affection made all those previous affections pale by comparison. See, it is not sufficient to tell a person to stop presenting the members of his body to the service of unrighteousness if you offer nothing better with which to replace that old way of living. And so in verse 13, Paul says, Do not go on presenting the members of your body as to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. And then without a breath, he says, But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, I'm borrowing here the title of a very old sermon by a 19th century Scottish preacher, uh, Thomas Chalmers, a, a sermon that was recommended to all of us by Nate Bramson when he came and spoke to us several weeks ago. And the title of that sermon is The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Now, I understand that kind of language is not all that familiar to most of us. What it means is the power of a new affection to expel or eradicate an old affection, to push it away. Here in Chalmers' own words is his explanation of the thesis of his sermon. He says, A moralist will be unsuccessful in trying to displace his love of the world by reviewing the ills of the world. Misplaced affections need to be replaced by the far greater power of the affection of the gospel. There are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart its love of the world either by a demonstration of the world's vanity so as that the heart shall be prevailed upon simply to withdraw its regards from an object that is not worthy of it, or by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment so that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. (laughs) I think that's beautiful. The whole thesis of his sermon is that that second approach is the biblical approach and it's the only one that works. Essentially what he's pointing out is that, again, it's insufficient simply to tell a believer to put off the habit of his old sin nature until he sees the superior worthiness of the new habit of putting on Christ. Once he's convinced that the godly nature which God has made his new identity brings infinitely greater benefit than his old nature, and that the God who has imparted that nature to him is infinitely more worthy of his affection than the sin he is called to leave behind, the replacement of the old with the new in that man's practice becomes inevitable and it becomes joyful. That, once again, is why it is so critically important that we know with great familiarity what we have been given in Christ and who it is that has given it to us. Because, beloved, when we know his character and his ways, 
There is no worthy affection except him. The last thing Paul deals with in this passage in verse 14 is that grace frees us from the mastery of sin and law doesn't. Why sin shall not be master over you? Because you were not under law but under grace. He finishes these verses with the same theme with which he started them, talking about sin's former mastery over us. He already said in verse 12, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Now he says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Once again, the commands regarding what we are to do and are not to do are based on a reality that's already true. And the reality to which Paul directs us here is the distinction between law and grace. How is it that being under grace instead of under law enables us to put off the mastery that sin formerly had over us? Well, at this point in verse 14, Paul doesn't really answer that question. Instead, he simply asserts in a straightforward manner that the mastery of sin over us is defeated because we are not under law but under grace. But he's already given us a clue as to how this works. In chapter 5, verse 20, when he said, The law came in that transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It's pretty clear in that equation which is the best side of the equation. (laughs) What did law do with regard to sin? It made it increase, prompted its increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He's already pointed out then that the law doesn't cure sin. It actually makes the sin problem worse. So here in 6.14, he's setting the stage for the discussion about our freedom from slavery to sin in the verses that will immediately follow. But he's also priming the pump for what he will say in chapters 7 and 8 about the conflict between the spiritual man and the fleshly man and the conflict between law and grace and ultimately about the victory of the spirit over the flesh. When he dives into that conflict and and that victory in the next two chapters, he'll have more to say about this whole law and sin association. So stay tuned. Verse 14 draws our attention back to the conflict between law and grace that played such an important part in all that Paul has already said about the life we possess in Christ, about justification. And that this verse, verse 14, puts us on notice that there's more going on here than God simply presenting commands and expecting us to comply with them. If we take the imperatives in chapter 6 as the whole story of how we become sanctified, it would be easy for us to become man-centered rather than God-centered. I hope we've seen enough this morning to avoid that even in this small passage. But Paul's going to make sure that we uh, don't go that direction as he, as he proceeds. As I mentioned earlier, the practical victory over the power of sin that God is at work to accomplish us every day of our lives, this side of heaven, is the victory of the Holy Spirit over these mortal bodies, over this flesh, over this sin nature. So stay tuned. Loving Father, 
We thank you for all that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. May we never take our eyes off of him. When we lose our resolve to truly saturate our minds with that which you alone have revealed about yourself and that which you have done, or when we lose our resolve to count it as true moment by moment, please convict us, Lord. Turn the eyes of our hearts back to you that we may daily present ourselves to you as those alive from the dead and that we may present the very parts of our bodies to you as instruments of your eternal purposes and of righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.